0: So I'm here with Gwendolyn Robke and Alejandra Avad, who are both members of Radical BIPOC Women and Femmes Collective here at CU Boulder and are the minds behind the recent temporary installations that have been installed on the CU campus, which have Divest to Invest written on them and are made in part with the growing BIPOC movement uh, on college campuses, including CU Boulder. Um, So thank you both for coming to talk with us today. Thank you for having us. So Gwendolyn, um, I believe it was uh, CBS Denver in their coverage of this installation. They said that it was originally your idea um, about a year ago. And then when you when Alejandra came in, you both were kind of able to get started and make it a reality. So um, for Gwendolyn, how did you originally get the idea to kind of do this installation on campus?
1: So about like a year ago, two years ago, I was working with people for the divestment campaign specifically for prison labor. Um, And so I remember we were trying to think of how best to occupy space, uh, especially because like there are very few people who are trying to do that and still trying to do that. And so I remember seeing these crosses that had been put in the Northern Quad by one of the sororities specifically dealing with Fimside. And I was like, wow, that's a really powerful image. It's a really good way to take up space. Not only that, but they had a couple of people posted throughout the day. So they were still able to have people to accompany the like installation the demonstration, um, but not have like this massive number of people while making a statement. And so I remember thinking, it's like, why don't we make silhouettes of like prisoners, because that's what's going on on campus. When we have a campus that's filled with prison labor, that's who's silently in the background at all times. Um, And so we really wanted to do that. Some people also wanted to do like steel tables and desks that were available and station them. We just didn't have the manpower, and we also didn't have the skill set. But that's how it came about, was just like this idea of occupying space um, in absence. And then I I met Alejandra, and Alejandra has skills that I do not have um and also Alejandra is the good flavor of stubborn which means that she gets things done um, and so I just <laughs> well because I'm stubborn true. too but like yeah. it's the like, I hope it's a good flavor um it is. But, <laughs> but it's like because Alejandra like we had met before again we had been making science for um and what was going on with her being denied tenure and this like flavor purchase at the university and so like. Um, fast forward like a couple of months and we like meet again and then it's like, okay, like clearly you want to be a part of this work. Do you want to be a part of radical BIPOC one and And Alejandro's like, oh yeah. And then within our first (laughs) meeting, because we were like ramping up again, like this divestment from police and talking about how do we make a statement with this? Because it's one thing that the press conference, it's a very different one to have something that's visible on campus. Because if you don't know what's going on in campus, like you're not gonna see a press conference, you're just not, but you will see something in passing on campus. And so I was like, well, why don't we revisit this idea? And so at this point, Alejandra was in the group. I think this was like her first or second meeting. And she was like, oh, my God, there's a laser cutter. And, I, and, like, and then from there, I was like, okay, like, this is actually going to happen this time. And it was awesome. Yeah. And then
2: we did a cardboard um, collection. So people were giving us cardboard. And one of your friends invited us to skate. And then we skated on Nordland northern light. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wow, look at all the seating. <laughs> and so I was like, we should make the silhouette sit on these. And, and then Wendelin was like, yeah. <laughs> and then we just kind of sat there talking and chilling. And it was so nice. And then people um, were willing to help us. Like, from different departments, from different, um, how would you call that, hierarchy? Staff, faculty, Yeah. There's students. a lot of faculty, yeah. yeah,
1: who donated, um, like, materials and money.
2: Yeah, it was amazing. And we would set up every morning, <laughs> and we would uninstall every evening. <laughs> and sometimes we had to run because it was going to rain. It's funny.
0: I was going to ask. Um, I read in the art and art history news on the CU Boulder website that with this installation, you were taking it down and setting it back up um, every morning uh, during the week where it was installed. Um, was that due to weather concerns, or were there other any other concerns around keeping it up overnight, um, or was it just more of a general move that um, kind of you had cho- chose to do?
2: we we both thought that it would be best to grab it just in case because we didn't know how it was gonna be i mean it can be windy it can be yeah there's like all the weather issues but also we don't know what happens at night (laughs) people could be like more mischievous
1: (laughs) well it was also definitely, it was also August. So 100% weather in my mind, because there's rolling storms in August. And again, like Alejandra said, we had to run to pick them up because yeah. like they would have been destroyed, honestly. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, it's also not even mischievousness on the side of the students. I think our bigger concern was that, especially where it was located, a truck from the university, which we saw several of, could very easily just roll up there and take our stuff. Um, And, you know, like with the campus climate and how little faith we have in the university, I think that really was something that they would have thought of doing and probably would have done. Um, My freshman year, and I've told Alejandra this like four years ago, we did have provocative chalking done from, so back when I was in BSA my freshman year, I think we had like white silence is violence, um, this is like on stolen land, like just, you know, general slogans. And we had chalked it the night before. Probably by eight thirty in the morning, they had already washed all of it away. Um, and their and their like reasoning was that we had like written on a building, which we did not. They were, they washed all of it away. And they're like, well, it was really inflammatory, and we got a call about it. And so I think that's also it. Like we don't trust the university for good reason, um, and we would like to, you know, as you've seen, reinstall these. So, yep, <laughs> very calculated. <laughs>
2: yeah. All all the
1: what-ifs were covered. (laughs) Even though, so you can talk about this, so you've seen that we've tried to like reinstall as well, specifically with COVID, because again, it's not just a vest to invest. There are BIPOC stories on the cut. up cardboard, like guys. There's also like significant literature about why this is important, how to do this. So part of that also goes to like bigger things like COVID. And so we did try to set it up at night um, at the Ralphie statue. And what we saw come the morning was that a lot of things were gone and missing, so. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, so that was a lesson in that.
0: (laughs) I believe I saw the, I think I might have seen the uh, Ralphie statue installation um, around the time where you had installed that. Um, I was going to ask, do you have any other locations that you're planning on setting these up at, or is that something you'd rather not bring up at the moment, or is it something you're still working on uh, deciding how to do?
1: I'm waiting for Allah to say something. Uh,
2: okay. <laughs> She's well, we are planning things, but um I don't know
1: how much we can say. Can we say? I don't <laughs> you know the man also it's a surprise. That's the best part. Surprise. Yeah.
0: You also mentioned oh sorry. Uh go ahead.
1: I'm sorry. What were you gonna say?
0: Oh, I was gonna ask, uh, as you mentioned, there is literature as well as statistics and some BIPOC stories that are written on these installations. So how do you choose what you include on um, these cutouts? Uh, Is there anything in specific that you have in mind when you're looking at um, what to include? Um, What's kind of your process like going through that?
1: I mean, I think it's continuing this narrative. So the whole idea of these cardboard cutouts, these black silhouettes is absence. Is this idea that people are missing, like in the background, people are missing. Um, And then taking that background and bring to the foreground. And so some of the things that we're talking about when people are missing in our stats, is graduation rate, retention rate. So we pick things that are like, again, what like, why are these people missing? So here's the retention rate. Here's the raw number that you can associate with the people who are absent. And then to accompany that raw number, here is a story that might explain it. So it's like, okay, like black people are not as graduating as much from here. That's a number, which is good to know, like you can see it. And I think some people like that works better in their brain, but then other people it's like, okay, but why? Well, here's the why. Here's a story where someone was yelled at on campus to the point where they don't feel safe anymore. Here's a story where someone was like verbally attacked and all of these things. And so I think that's why just, again, this rich narrative of absence and I I mean, that's how I take
2: it, how do you bring Alejandra. I definitely think collaboration was a big part of it too. Um, a lot of the data and analysis was given to us and we had like a whole um, meeting about it and we sat there and talked about it. And <laughs> I was actually looking at the graph and I was like, I have no idea. I don't understand these numbers. Where are they coming from? And so apparently it's like a six year, um, analysis and so that's how they figure the numbers and so yeah so we had that then when we had maker's day um there were students from other departments i believe there was a student from environmental science and stem who were looking at the the data also and they also had a conversation about like how how to write it down and i remember there was like a kind of like a like a circle, a socially distant circle. Circle, <laughs> and I think that's where everybody decided like what, which, um, which ones we were going to highlight. Even though we also had had that meeting, and then <laughs> Wendelin, you were like, "Go ahead, let them know," and I was like, "Well, <laughs> let them have a conversation." <laughs> it was funny. I think I think a lot of people bring a lot of. Um, skills to the table and I think that's important. Um, I, I think that's why collaboration's fun.
0: So, and then with that, so um, if you don't mind me asking, so as members of the BIPOC community, um, how do you feel that your own personal experiences kind of shaped um, kind of what the, how do you feel your experience kind of shaped how this installation uh, Came out in the end. Uh, how do you feel? You're like as we've mentioned, absence um, and kind of like looking at why these like members of um, what should be our BIPOC community it, are absent. Um, and I was wondering, so with both of with both of you, do you feel like there's any specific parts of your experience that have really kind of played into this? Kind of how your experiences played into the installation.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, so I think, so for context and for listeners, so um, I'm a multiracial person. Uh, My mom's family are freedmen, so they're Black Native Americans, and my dad's family is white. And then I also am very, so I'm really fair. I'm a very fair Black person. I'm also a Black person who goes through um, the pleasures of ambiguity. So my experience on campus has been very different than a lot of Black people's experience on campus, 100% and the spaces that I've been present in. And so I've never, like on campus, I've never fully felt, um, I haven't felt absent per se. What I would say is that I've felt uninvestigated, which is to say that stories like mine aren't represented in classes. Like in my Native American studies class freshman year, we didn't talk about Friedman. And whenever I brought it up, it was very aggressive, or it was assumed because I was already a different flavor of other, then somehow I was still represented And so there's definitely a lot of power that comes with being a lighter skinned person. There's a lot of mobility with having a white father and being reared in whiteness in that way. But I think what I put in the silhouettes is this idea, well, there are people who are having these much different experiences of BIPOC identity um, that have to do with a different flavor of visibility than mine, just because like, again, like I joke with Alejandra, most of the hate I get on campus has been in instances that have very little to do with me um, background wise. Like when i like i tell everyone this story like i got yelled at in the natural history museum when i was with like my friend muhammad and this dude was like oh wait, this is radio he said like f palestine i'm pro-semitic to me he was yelling at me um and it has nothing to do with me but it's this again perceived identity and so i think that's also why they're like not pipoc that are like painted a certain way like it's not to assign people a specific flavor of pipoc identity but again this ambiguity. Because when we're talking about BIPOC identity, it's never as cut and dry as like, oh, so you're Black and you're this. Oh, so you're Indigenous and you're this. Oh, so you're Latinx and it's this. It's that we have very rich identities that often cross lines. And so to also have like that, like silhouette, like the just plain Black is to also leave it up to people to read. Because while there are specific stories from Latinx people or Black, like BIPOC people are missing on this campus, not only from these groups, but, because of them being in groups that are hard to classify. Like the Afro-Latino does exist, the Afro-Indigenous person does exist. Um, And again, multiracial people exist and that's not reflected in their statistics. So even when we were going through statistics trying to look for graduation rates, they don't have a multiracial category when we're looking at that. So they're probably, you know, either assigning you to whichever one they've chosen or are they just like throwing away data? So is it like when I'm like assessed for my graduation success, will that be black? or will that just be like whatever group they pick for me? And so I think that's where I put in my experiences. Again, like we are already like multi-story people as BIPOC folk as well. And so just trying to complicate it even further, like even the statistics we pick don't represent me because I'm not even present in those statistics. Even how I'm treated on campus doesn't represent me because it'll be assumed to be something that I'm not. So, yeah. Yeah,
2: I I like to say that in As a graduate student in the art department, I was really um, shocked to see the lack of diversity. Um, And also they need mandatory anti-racist training like ASAP. Like it's insane. (laughs) Um, So yeah, all those things like influenced me. Um, When I first came, there were more BIPOC students in the ceramics um, area. and then as they graduated there were no attempts to give scholarships in the outreach programs at all so therefore there's no BIPOC or rural students in the ceramics area and so if you look at the ceram- um, if you look at the art art and art history graduate students you can see how undiverse. diverse <laughs> And like, and when I say diverse, I, I also want to emphasize like, like racial equity because like Wendolyn said, um, if you're fair skin, that gives you a lot of privileges. Um, when I first started my semester at CU, I brought my Jamaican friend to, to kind of shadow the campus because I wanted him to apply to the photography program. And I reached out. I reached out to one of the professors, <laughs> and I said, "Oh, I have a student that is interested. Uh, would you like me to put you in contact with him?" And he answered, "Nobody did that for me. Why should I do that for him?" And I was like, "Okay. Well, there's no outreach here. <laughs> and also, I'm. I come from." Uh, like a lot of my friends have different flavors so (laughs) it was kind of shocking to see how how these spaces are designed to be and stay white (laughs) so yeah that's kind of concerning
0: so alejandra you mentioned kind of anti-racist act uh, kind of like anti-racist training um so if you don't mind me asking um on a personal level, do either of you feel like there has been change since um, these, uh, since with these BIPOC converse- these conversations about BIPOC students and about kind of like uh, divest to invest and race on campus? Um, do you feel like you've seen any change uh, thus far um, in your personal experience?
2: For the graduate department. I would say yes and I would also say no. I would say yes because they finally took us seriously and they are willing to work to implement changes which they're working on. And I say also no because it took so much for them to meet with us. And I had to have in the meeting uh, a counselor from OVA also. And I had to also have the Denver Post (laughs) So you can imagine how like not seriously, seriously we were taken because we were trying to make emphasis on how important it is to divest and support and to have all these trainings. And they kind of don't really see the importance of that, which is really sad.
0: And um, for uh, Gwendolyn, uh, do you feel like you have seen change uh, during this time? Or do you feel like there is not any any change yet on a personal um in your personal experience
1: um i think they're scared i think that's the one big change i see is that they're much more afraid and i think that's good i think that's slowly driving them to put more pressure on some of the points that we've passed. so we've seen like magically certain things are appearing like another counselor position specifically for multicultural things like we're seeing magically like money is coming out of nowhere um and being put towards some of our efforts and so i see that change is that they're recognizing yeah. that they're on the failing side of history which again every time we do an interview and people are like do you think this will happen i'm like well it's gonna happen i don't know if it's gonna happen this year it's just like do you want to look foolish and behind so again i think i see a lot of fear um because they know they're wrong and we're also in the middle of a pandemic that is Like they're also like they're wrong on so many levels at this point in their approach to (laughs) racial equity and justice that it's just like they're getting overwhelmed. And so I haven't seen the change that I want yet. I don't know if I will see it this year, but what I can definitely say is, um, yeah, I don't think they I don't think people are as passive. Um, both on the administrative side and also students. Because let's face it, like I'm like, I'm always worried about this. I'm like, this has been my whole college experience. I would have loved for this not to be my college experience. I would have loved for this not to be my life sometimes, I think, because this is a waste of my time, half of the time, to deal with people who have not dealt with themselves and basically are damaged in of themselves and so damage others because of gender or race or sexual orientation. And so this has been my whole life. And then coming right hot into college, this was my whole college experience. And still, I was expected to be in several scholarships to maintain GPA, to maintain like research and all of these things. And so this isn't new. Um, And the only thing I have seen change is that people are slowly getting more and more ashamed and more and more afraid because they're realizing what they're doing is shameful. Um, And I know Alejandro, we had a meeting, he's like, shaming people is not the right. Well, some people are just gonna be ashamed because what they're doing is wrong. What they're doing is violence. And it always has been. And so yeah, I think that's what I'm seeing more is people really and truly being ashamed of what they're doing to other folks or not doing by their inaction, which you know what we can use because what we've seen is like a lot of random rich people who are white and old, they're like, oh, like I have millions of dollars. Let me like pour a million dollars into the Miramontes Arts and Science program out of nowhere. Like they could have done that way before all of this. Um, So yeah, I don't know. Like small changes, definitely important because it's setting a tone, but I want to see more. Yeah,
2: the the statements that they added were so performative that uh, in order for you to really want to change, you would have to take those trainings, right? <laughs> to learn to be anti-racist and you would have to want to support the demands of the community. So that's why we're like, yeah, they are paying attention, but will those professors really take it seriously and do their part?
0: So when it comes to anti-racist training um, for students, faculty, uh, staff um, on CU, um, now I know this is a very kind of like, this is a very large topic to address um, in terms of training. Um, so based on what you've seen in personal experience, um, What do you personally want to see um, kind of like taught as part of anti racism trait, racism training? Um, Just kind of a personal level based on what you've seen. What's a lesson do you think that people need to learn?
1: They need Um, to learn how to decenter whiteness from and even black and brown people because what, what does that even mean when we're talking about whiteness? When we're talking about all of this, like we get it. Race is a social construction. Most things are social constructions but because we bought into the social contract and because we bought into fully this construction of whiteness across culture, what we see is this fragility that's allowed to white folks, again, from any culture. And so when we're trying to have these conversations about justice and equity, people are gonna have to give something up and that is uncomfortable because when I say give something up, people are like, oh, well, like if it's equal, you can like, well, you'll both be here. But just thinking of how here has been, it's not sustainable. Like, when we look at what white supremacy has done to the world, that is not a level that everyone should be at. No one should be there. And so, because like there is this white fragility where you have to tell people what you're doing in and of itself is harmful. No one should be at that level. No one should even strive for that. Because what it is, is domination over other people for no other reason than because you were born white into this structure. And then people are automatically defensive and they're saying that you hate them. It's like, no. Like, what is what it's fine to hate is the position that you occupy. And so I think decentering whiteness and being really bold and open and not bold in a comfortable way, because we've seen how Boulder does this time and time again, college campuses do this time and time again. Oh, we can be bold and we can have these conversations, but only as long as they maintain people's comfort. I'm sorry, but people's comfort is what gets other people killed and we can't afford that anymore. And so I think that's what it has to be in anti-racism training. It's like, this is systematic. This is structural, I know this scares you and hurts your feelings, but guess what? Your feelings are not worth someone's life. They're just not, I'm sorry, they're not. And you have to come to terms with that because you're not gonna be a good anti-racist ally if it's always, well, I feel this and my feelings that, and this makes me uncomfortable because guess what? You get discomfort. There are other people who that's not an option for them. Like being black and brown in a white space, it is constantly that you are surveilled it is constantly that you are judged by, against your other black and brown peers and pitted against them. Comfort isn't an option for some people. So if you can do the bare minimum in attending like an anti-racist training that is A, going to call into question your very foundation of self because like that's also what race is. It is the foundation of self for a lot of people. Whiteness is your everything. And if you weren't white, you probably wouldn't have succeeded for a lot of folk. And if you're afraid to be called into question like that, then you're not doing anti-racism correctly and so i think that's what i want to see i want to see people be uncomfortable because uncomfortable is where this growth is going to be
2: i agree and i also think like a lot of training can go also towards um understanding the bipoc experience because i think often um when a bipoc person (laughs) says hey this is wrong we need to fix this or i this feels like this the, the other person who doesn't have that experience looks at that person with surprise and dismisses that experience. And so if you go to the mental health um, therapist, we don't have enough BIPOC therapists with BIPOC experiences. So being the minority is a constant reminder of that violence right? Like if you think about like even where we are, like we are in Native American territories. So we are always reminded of that violence. And not even that long ago in 1974 with Los Ace Boulders, that is violence. (laughs) So we are constantly reminded that the absence is a result of violence against bodies, humans who have not been respected because this idea that a person who is white should dominate that is that is the case, so that is white supremacy
0: so we've discussed kind of anti racist action kind of what you we would want you would want that to entail um, now do, now you've mentioned also kind of the mental health um, aspect um, with there not being a lot of uh, BIPOC therapists um, now I remember I believe it was in the CBS article that it was mentioned also that um, kind of like you want mental health resources um, have you personally felt that there's but you've uh, been affected through that um, factor of this issue uh, mental health oh
2: yeah um, <laughs> I personally have tried to get therapy um, and yes, I would say yes. I even tried to get um, couples therapy because it used to be that you and your partner could get get couples therapy but apparently now they've taken that away. And so you have to kind of look it up, like look for it outside. So there's a lot of like the type of help that you can get or the type of therapy you can get is not up to par. For the box experience. Um, and yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I would like to be understood or like heard versus like looked down or like dismissed.
1: And I mean, okay, this is a system that breeds unwellness, like not only in BIPOC students, because again, like I've told Alejandra and like a lot of people know, say Boulder is notorious for how it isolates people and the propensity of eating disorders at this campus and all sorts of things. Like it is a campus that to everyone is honestly, usually not ideal for like finding friends and finding comfort and feeling as if you have resources for mental health. Cause even again, even for the general population CAPS is grossly overworked. And so compound that with BIPOC identity though, compound that with this idea of again, always being surveilled as a BIPOC person, being the only one, having people yell at you, having people touch you unnecessarily, knowing that if you undergo a sexual assault as a BIPOC woman of color or a femme of color, there's almost no one you can report that to, knowing that if you do report it, it won't be acted on, just all of those things coalescing to like also affect your mental health. It's this whole institution, because even when we yeah. spoke to the DA and he brought up, oh, I'm really interested, and helping a poly, especially with sexual assaults, like, well, who's gonna gonna report that to you? Who's BIPOC? Who are also the most at risk? No one. And to have that way on your mental health as well, where you are at a campus, where you're like up for grabs when it comes to just what can be done to you, be it by mentors and advisors in positions of power, or just other peers. It's, It's ridiculous to expect anyone who's BIPOC, women and femme, to feel well on this campus in any capacity. Like wellness is something that is almost unheard of because you are almost always on alert or you're almost always in this position of, well, if I slip up even a little bit, then I can't be here anymore.
2: And I also want to say that for graduate students, um, we, most of us teach. And so when you have, the anti-racist training or like you have access to mental health, that's like very, that's like a really powerful tool. And not only that, but these tenure professors have so much power because again, you're a minority, you're like the only one BIPOC um, instructor. And if you hear or you know of a tenure professor who has abused other, other people in the department, but then the other professors in the department don't say anything or do anything. And that person continues to be in that position of power. And you learn about this, like coming into the programs. And this is something that's repeated not only in the art department, but in other departments in a lot of CU departments. And why are we not auditing (laughs) these professors? Why can't we have a system where the students, the instructors can report these abusers so they don't continue to hurt these students. Because how are we gonna promote the school if these abusers are still being paid for abusing? Like that makes no sense.
0: So we've mentioned the um, the radical um, BIPOC woman and Femmes Collective group. Um, what has this, conversation this recent dialogue that we've seen, kind of um, become more relevant on college campuses. Um, I guess if that's uh, one way to put it, um, just kind of the recent kind of conversations that have been happening. Um, what has that, what has then that, that been like for them as a group?
1: So again, I think it's recognized. So radical BIPOC, women, X, and femme. Um, I started it when I was in Colombia, and by started I mean coalesced so i had kept hearing stories specifically from a lot of my friends who are graduate students of like sexual assault and abuses from advisors i'd heard a lot of stories of people almost getting pushed out of their programs um and I myself like just like there weren't spaces specifically for bipoc clinics and femmes a lot of spaces on campus that are supposed to be for bipoc folks end up having allies in there which doesn't necessarily like work for a lot of people it does not work for me and so if anything, it's just people, again, recognizing it because for forever, there's been these infractions. And so when this group started like, right when I got back, which was about, I don't know, November, like December of last year, we were already having these conversations we're having now. We had had the conversation, like we need more mental health resources. We need more Black and BIPOC students to be, or like, we need more Black and BIPOC like, faculty advisors, like all these things contribute to us feeling safer. Um, and so if I'm honest, it's not that it, the conversation has become like relevant it's just that people are again finally like we're all in quarantine and people just had to see it for what it is like when we talk about rape culture people often forget that it is because of this is not just a patriarchy this is a white hetero cis patriarchy like those extra words matter because it informs who is most abused um i think people think it's like because it's like become trendy for some people to be like oh yes like the murder of indigenous women, like it's like that's been happening for forever and imagine what it looks like on a college campus because these are the bodies that are most at risk, black and brown and trans and queer. Um, So again I don't think it's that it's relevant, it's just people don't like being told that they're late Um, and they're late, like severely late and their lateness has resulted in people you know, being grievously injured and or killed because that's what it is. And people don't like hearing that because it seems extreme or dramatic, but it's not. There are people who, because of how they're treated on these campuses, leave. There are people who are at high suicide risk on these campuses and also in society. And so it's other people's failure to recognize that this was a conversation that was important. That makes it more relevant now. It's just people are late and we have been having this conversation about them for forever and it's just that people got energized, which it's great, like, we're very happy, we're, like, happy that people are here with us finally, but we have been having this conversation, even before the beginning of the group, it's always been there.
2: Yeah,
1: I agree, the, it's, like, really,
2: it's really wild to see how, like, there's so much resistance for being trained, and I think, like, this is exactly what we need, we need, these trainings we need to protect the minority of students who continue to be pushed over and sometimes leave. And so that's kind of why this is so important because even when we leave, what's gonna to happen to the next generation?
0: My apologies for referring to it. The, um, the movement is becoming more relevant. I realize now that that missed the bark on this topic. Um, so with these conversations, um, how can, how can students at CU, um, get more involved and kind of in your personal, um, in your personal experience, what are ways that they can get involved to help, um, kind of like develop this conversation? How can they help to, um, kind of help get this anti-racist training and policies implemented? Um, are there any ways you've seen that? They can help that they can kind of get into um get into helping with this um with this project or with this um ongoing conversation around kind of like anti-racism
1: well i think the big thing is this like it's not a so it is an installation and it's a statement it's all these things but because like you probably like a lot of people here aren't bipoc women xfm so like we would not have them in our group but what we're advocating for is if you see racist, which I know this is a radio, so like it'll be edited out. But if you see someone doing some racist stuff, <laughs> stop them. Because literally this campus, there's so many people who are passive where they see racist things happen or like sexist homophobic things happen all the time and they just sit there. So I would say like what you can do that's not even like in the movement, but is ultimately the goal of the movement is to help shift society. By, when you see something, do something. Don't just say something. Don't report it just to OVA and all of that, because guess what? They don't do what they're supposed to half the time. So what you need to do as an individual who is seeing this, laying witness to this, is no longer to be a witness. You should be an active participant on the side of the person being harassed. You should be there to advocate, especially people who aren't BIPOC, who aren't femme. Like you are in a position where if you see someone getting attacked, because after the Trump election, like I was on campus, there were all sorts of weird things happening to folks. There are people who are trying to tear off people's jobs. You could do something. If you're at a bus stop and you see that, do something. And I think that's the most powerful. Like, sure, would we love more bodies to help us set up silhouettes? Yeah, that's great. Would we love more people to help us like paint and make things? Yeah, that's great. But ultimately, what like I personally really want is to see people live up to their word. Because you know what, again, like I brought up rape culture, there's hella rapists on this campus and people don't do anything. And that contributes also to racism these are people who feel entitled to other people's bodies and they're still in people's friend groups and people don't do anything it's the same with racists like you can't have rapists in your friend group you can't have racists in your friend group that's what people should be concerned with and doing is that if they have that kind of behavior around them they need to do something about it and doing something about it can be reporting that person and like seeking real justice and getting like some form of like restitution for their victims and or if they see an incident happening stopping that incident? Um, we also have a website.
2: It's called divest to which the founders, the co-founders of Black Lives Matter um, gave us a shout out, <laughs> which is amazing. <laughs> I just want to put that out there. Um, and in this website, people can see the documentation um, and support it. Um, And I think like if in their departments, they haven't adopted the anti-racist creed, they could implement it in their syllabi, um, a syllabus um, in their classes, it has a sister document. So like, there's so many documentations that were done in the summer that can be implemented into the classroom. I think that's a way of helping, especially if you're an instructor, the website is called DivestToInvestCollective.com, and we also have a divestment plan. We have a bipoc statement about COVID-19 because, again, that is an attack on bipoc bodies. Bipoc population are the most vulnerable, so thinking about wearing your mask would be a really nice thing to do um, because that means that you're protecting people that are vulnerable. Um, And so there are a lot of things like doing the action when you see something. And there's also the other actions that you can teach in your classroom. You can introduce um, BIPOC scholars. You can introduce uh, topics that decolonize the classroom. Um, Those, oh, also, (laughs) if you're a white person and you have dreads, cut them (laughs) because if we have that in our departments we have apparently we have some people in our departments who teach and have those and they're white (laughs) like just cut them you can do that that would be nice (laughs) um just recognizing like the level of, of commitment that you have for respecting other people
0: so um that comes to the end of some of my some of my questions. Now, um, as we kind of get towards the end of this interview, um, is there anything that you'd like our listeners to um, walk away thinking about? Is there anything you'd like our listeners to um, kind of think about, think on as a last note, or is there anything else you would just like to um, say while we're uh, say, for this interview. Is there anything else you would like to bring up or discuss?
1: Uh, sure. I don't know. Like, so I actually don't think I'm an activist or an organizer that much. Like, I personally don't think I am. I don't really care for it. Um, but I think that speaks to what the work looks like for a lot of people. Because this is also the flavor of work where it's like, am I getting death threats? No. Um, and I think some people need to sit with that because they think that the work looks one kind of way. And it doesn't. And so I would say, again, look at your families, look at your friends, and look at what you do. Look at if you're insulted when you have to call out your own privilege, because that's important, be it for white people or BIPOC people. Because again, I am an extremely light-skinned femme person. There's a life that I'm living that is not available to other people that has drastically benefited me and where I get to go. And if you're like afraid of acknowledging that, chances are you're not ready to do the work that's most needed. But if you do want to do the work, you got to do it, which is when you hear things from your parents, when you hear things from your so-called friends, you need to address it. Because that's ultimately, again, what the work is about. We need to restructure society. We need to stop thinking that it's acceptable to make certain kinds of comments and jokes and how to treat certain people. Like, it's just not. And so, again, I think the work is honestly on a much smaller scale than people think it is. It is not just signs is not just being a part of groups, it's really living up to your word. If you wanna be anti-racist, be anti-racist because it's gonna be inconvenient a lot of the time because what's convenient is what has allowed us to have the society where people are treated poorly for being BIPOC, queer, all of these things. So yeah, it's on a micro scale. Like we're not asking you to go out and become like Malcolm X Part II because honestly like no one's gonna be like that. What we're asking is that you have the basic decency that you stick to your word. Oh, you're anti-racist? That means you're constantly learning and you're not learning on the backs of BIPOC people. You're going out and seeking education. You're going out and being committed to understanding, being committed to knowing how you are at times complicit and trying to undo that. And it's not fancy. It's honestly, are your parents saying really racist shady things about BIPOC people and queer people? stop them explain it to them it's going to be uncomfortable it is exhausting but know that you get to be exhausted and not dead and that's the kindest way I can put it
2: yeah I would agree like there are conversations that that some of us can't have but if you have uh those are the conversations that you can have with your parents or your aunts or your friends that are not in our circle um and I think that's the bigger work that can be done to really have those minimal like like meaningful conversations that really point out why this is wrong
0: Alejandra, Gwendolyn, thank you both for coming and sitting down and talking with us today.
2: Thank you yes. Thank you I appreciate it.